welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a few years now, we've been sharing our latest Altos Research Market data every week in our weekly video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, what I'm looking to do is add some context to the, to the numbers, to the discussion about what's happening in the market and where we go from here, from, from thinkers, leaders who look at things differently from, from how I do every day. Every week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It's so hot, and then it cooled off, looked like it was mellowing, but all of a sudden, things are changing really fast again. So uh, when people ask me, Mike, can I get the data for local markets? The answer is yes. Go to altosresearch.com. You can book a free consultation. We can talk about how you use the market data in your business, and we'll take it from there. So without further ado, though, I'm just ecstatic to introduce my guest today, Jenny Schutz from the Brookings Institution. Jenny is a senior fellow at Brookings Metro and is an expert in urban economics and housing policy. She's written a number of peer-reviewed journal articles on land use, regulation, home prices, urban amenities, neighborhood change, and she's all over the media, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, PBS, Vox, many more. Before joining Brookings, Jenny served as the principal economist at the Board of Governors of the Fed and has spent significant time in academia. She's currently a non-resident fellow at George Washington University's GW's Center for Washington Area Studies and also teaches at Georgetown's Urban Planning System, Urban Planning Program. And my daughter is a student at GW. So maybe we'll talk about GW today. Because she isn't busy enough, Jenny is also the author of Fixer Upper, how to repair America's broken housing systems. And so I'm super interested in this today because you know we talk about the data, we talk about why homes are unaffordable and why they might stay unaffordable, why we, certain tax laws are so destructive or s certain places are at such risk and, and all of those dynamics. And Jenny's done a ton of deep study in the, the area. It's in the book. And so we're going to dive into all kinds of really fascinating things. We're not going to talk necessarily about home price trends this week, but we might talk longer term future. So with that, Jenny, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's, so let's get started by helping my, our, our listeners understand about you a little bit and, and Brookings and what you do there. Sure. I'm an urban economist by training. I've been at Brookings for about five years now, 
And I focus on primarily housing affordability, housing policy, what makes housing markets work or not work across the U.S. And in particular, I, my work is very focused on helping policymakers find solutions. So pointing to problems is helpful up to a point, but what we really need is to have solutions on the table and to identify who can be doing things differently to get us to better outcomes. Yeah, your book has, each chapter has solutions. Like these are not just problems, but these are proposed solutions. And I'm I'm looking forward to talking to you know, about a lot of those solutions and, and whether you're finding traction in some of those solutions. You know, you also spent time at the Fed. And do you have, uh, do you have thoughts about the Fed and housing and mortgage markets? Like, is that something we should put on our conversation today? Because, wow, what a, what a couple of years it's been in that, in that space. Yeah, so I should say that I was at the Fed in the Community Development Division, so not the part that feeds directly into monetary policy and interest rates. I actually stay pretty far away from monetary policy, and I will say that most of my research actually focuses more on the rental market because that's where low and moderate income households have to be. But we can definitely talk a little bit about sort of what interest rate hikes do, not just to the homeownership market, but also to the rental market, which I think is a really important and under-discussed topic. Yeah. Yes, let's definitely, we're going to definitely hit that today. Rents and interest rates. People, people ask me, we talk about that a lot. In fact, on this podcast and in other places where it's, where people assume that very often people assume that home prices and rents are, are substitutes for inverse from each other. If people aren't buying homes, they're going to, rental demand is going to go up. And we found over time that that's not true, that that they're going up at the same time or they're falling at the same time. And, and it's sometimes counterintuitive to people. So awesome. So let, let's, we'll definitely do that. Before we dive into the, the deep details like that, let's start with the book, Fixer Upper, How to Repair America's Brozen, Broken Housing Systems. I'm interested in like, let's talk about the big conclusions, the, the big messages. I also like in the subtitle, you call it housing systems. And so it's not just one. And so let's maybe start there. T tell me about the systems that we're looking at. Sure. One of the reasons that I wrote the book is to help people who are not deeply embedded in the housing world think more holistically about all of the things that feed into housing outcomes, housing choices. You know, and for those of us who work in housing, we know, of course, this is really central to a lot of facets of people's well-being. It's not just that you have to have a house to live in, the shelter over your head. But the location of where you live is so important for a lot of other outcomes, where you are relative to jobs and to public transportation and all kinds of neighborhood amenities, you know, where families live determines where their kids go to school and the quality of their kids school. And so a lot of the things that we you know, don't think of as directly related to housing, like school quality and infrastructure decisions about where we're building roads and transportation systems, all of those are really important to housing as well. So the book goes through a couple of different pieces of kind of the big problems, starting with we just don't have enough homes for people to live in. We haven't been building enough homes nationally for about a decade. Then we have this second affordability crisis, which is that low-income households don't earn enough money to afford decent quality housing, and we don't really provide that much financial support for most poor people. So those are the two affordability crises that most people are, are aware of to some extent. But then there are lots of things that feed into this. 
things like our reliance on homeownership as a form of wealth building, which is subsidized through the tax code, the way we pay for things like neighborhood infrastructure based on property taxes, which again feeds back into the housing market. So there are a lot of these complicated layers of policies that all determine the housing outcomes that we see. And I was trying to help people think through a little bit how they fit together. And in many ways, our current policies are reinforcing bad outcomes. Not enough homes of the right type in the right place, too many homes in the wrong place, and poor people who can't afford decent quality housing anywhere. Yeah, and those are, I mean, Many of those are sort of indisputable. We have a real affordability crisis. It's been exacerbated in the last couple of years. And and at the same time, homeowners have gained such wealth and are in such a solid place that we've 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 like we talk about this sometimes. It's like we've in service of the boomers who own their homes, we've priced our kids out of the market. Is that a solvable thing? Well, it's solvable if we can get the politics right. And that's really the, the critical sticking point for all of our kind of bad outcomes. We know the policy fixes, the technical fixes in some sense. We need to make it easier to build moderately priced housing in places with high demand. And we know some of the policies it would take to do that. We need to provide more financial support across the board to low-income households. We also need to rethink the way people are getting into homeownership and some of the protections in the rental market. All of those are doable policies, but the politics around this stuff are really hard, in part because of the generational divide that you pointed out. There's such a split at this point between households, say, over the age of 40 and under the age of 40, on whether or not they own a home, whether they are building wealth through the home that they have already purchased, or whether they are locked out of this, spending a bigger and bigger share of their monthly income on rent, which makes them unable to save and seeing prices go up, which means the amount they need to save goes up and up. So there, you know, there's really this sense for a lot of younger households that the system that worked for their parents and grandparents is just not accessible for them. And there's a lot of generational anger about that. Yeah, yeah, there sure is. And and the you, yeah, I think there's a you have a great line in the book where it says the you're talking about how our homeownership policies are focused on generating wealth for homeowners and that sort of by definition makes them really toxic voters tell me about that yeah absolutely you know i mean for for middle class households especially their home equity is the largest single financial asset so this is anywhere between you know 50 to 80% of their net worth is tied up in their home equity that makes people really sensitive about anything that they think might lower their property values or even just slow the rate of increase at this point. So I think part of the problem is that homeowners have gotten so used to the idea, my home value should go up by 10% every year. And if it's only going up by 6%, I'm somehow being ripped off. But that means that homeowners then are very protective of their neighborhoods and they will show up and fight against proposals to build not just affordable housing, but you know, market rate apartments or any kind of development, you know, commercial development that they don't want in their neighborhood. So a lot of the problem that we see is this idea that current homeowners 
have a lot of political power, they don't like change personally in their environment, and they don't want change that might be financially threatening to them. And so they just stop development altogether and, and essentially shut down the process of cities being able to grow. Yeah, it boy, it feels intractable to me, but I'm I'm optimistic by your your proposal, some of your proposed solutions. Like we have we have visibility on what the good policy is. Tell me about the you know one of the the chapters is about like we need to build where people want to live. Tell me, talk to me about that. Yeah, so if, you know when markets are working well, developers want to build homes in the places people want to live because that's where they can charge high prices or rents for their finished product. So we would expect there to be a lot of development in sort of high demand locations, right? And across the country, this means that metro areas like New York and Boston and DC and San Francisco and Seattle, the places that have really well-paid jobs and vibrant dynamic companies, that's where lots of people want to move and you know get jobs in those industries industries, those cities have seen housing prices go up, but they haven't actually seen nearly as much new development as they should have because they've made it really hard to build. And we see the same dynamics if you look within metro areas across neighborhoods, that communities that are closest to the job centers, closest to public transit, that have the best public schools and parks and amenities, those neighborhoods ought to be building more homes so that more people can live there. But those are often the places that build virtually no new housing. And you know, essentially the problem is local governments control the supply of housing. You have to get permission from your local government to build a single family subdivision or an apartment building on a parking lot. Any kind of change to housing has to be approved by the local government. Local governments have adopted rules through their zoning code that often make it very hard to build, especially to build higher density homes. And local governments have created a process where existing homeowners have disproportionate power to veto things they don't like. So it's both the rules written down on paper and this political process of approving housing that have kept us from building enough homes in the highest demand locations. You know, and there's a national price to pay for that. You know, the, the GDP of the US hasn't grown by as much as it should because we can't build enough homes in these high productivity places. Companies can't hire and retain workers, people can't move there. So there are real economic costs to this. Yeah, is that is that is that measurable? Like there's a measurable GDP count because we, we're not building where people need to live. There is. There's a famous paper by a couple of economists out of Berkeley, Enrico Moretti and his co-author, she, who find that the GDP grew by about a third less than it should have over about a, over about a 40-year period of time. But right, GDP is about a third less than it should be because we haven't built enough homes in places like the Bay Area. Wow. So, so we know that the Bay Area is messed up with its housing construction, but people also want to live in the Sun Belt. They're moving to Texas and Arizona and Vegas and, you know, in droves. Are we building enough there? We have been until pretty recently. So even since when I started working on the book, which is almost three years ago now, at that point, we were still building enough in places like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Texas to keep up with demand. One thing we've seen in the pandemic is that it has supercharged demand for a lot of these kind of second cities, right? The, the places that had elastic housing supply, good climate, 
had lots of jobs, you know, were good places to live. Lots of people wanted to leave places like Seattle and San Francisco and move to places like Austin and Houston. And they are now having trouble keeping up with the growth just because it's so rapid. So that I think is a question mark whether over the next couple of years, those metro areas start to get back to a little bit more kind of housing prices that look a little more consistent with overall inflation instead of sort of rapidly outpacing it. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I do worry about if places like Denver and Austin and Nashville that used to be kind of a safety valve for the really expensive cities, if those places become more expensive and especially if they start cracking down on development and becoming more cautious about building, then we're really going to be in trouble because they've been absorbing a lot of the excess demand. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a tension that that comes up in the book because you know, one of the other challenges that you talk about and I think about a lot because I live in Northern California is are the climate implications. And, you know, like I can't get fire insurance on my my house in the mountains. And, you know, the the you know, or I mean it's Hurricane Ian this week. You, you know, and and so, but people want to move from New York to Fort Myers, Florida, dramatically. So, how do we balance that tension? Yeah, I mean that that's such an important point, and there there are a couple of different ways that we can think about it. You know, the the New Yorkers who want to move to Fort Myers for kind of lifestyle and climate. You know, Florida has had a very building friendly industry for a long time. This state has really you know allowed a lot of growth, encouraged a lot of growth including in places where probably people shouldn't be living. So we've built a ton of houses in South Florida, which not only gets hit by hurricanes, but it's got persistent sea level rise. So there are gonna be a lot of houses that are literally underwater all the time that should never have been built there, but we haven't priced climate risk appropriately into things like homeowners insurance or into mortgages. So in many ways, consumers haven't had the right information to make a decision about where they should or shouldn't buy a house because that hasn't been available to them. And there's actually just recently, there was a great study that came out by Redfin where they started showing some people climate risk scores on the individual properties that they were browsing. And they saw that after a couple of weeks, people who saw these climate risk scores started looking for lower risk properties. So when we give people the information, they can make good decisions, but we haven't done that consistently so far. Yeah. And part of the problem does go back to the fact that these really high opportunity cities haven't been building enough homes, right? So the city of San Francisco is one of the lowest climate risk places in the Bay Area and Northern California, you know, if they built more homes, there would be fewer people living, you know, closer to the wildfires out on the urban edge, right? So it is it is still the problem that if those cities made it easier to build, we would have less of the suburban sprawl in really high-risk areas. Yeah, and, and I think that the 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 reality is that the those climate risks are priced in, they're just paid by the taxpayer as opposed to the homeowner. And and it's such an indirect tax that we, it's really hard for us to process. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, U.S. taxpayers are going to pay to rebuild a lot of the homes in Florida that have been hit this week by Hurricane Ian, but that's going to get bundled into the overall federal budget, right? We don't have a line item for FEMA and disaster recovery. And so we're not going to know how much more our taxes are going up because we have these persistent disasters, right? The better way to do this is if you want to buy a house in Florida that's close to the water and is likely to get hit by a hurricane, your mortgage interest rate ought to be, I don't know, three percentage points higher than somebody who's buying further inland. Which yeah. is a, that is a really, really touchy subject for Fannie and Freddie and all of the kind of the federal regulators looking at mortgages. For sure. And not just the mortgages, but the insurance companies are so heavily regulated based on what they can even look at at the data. It's really fascinating. I do think Redfin and Daryl Fairweather, the, the chief economist at Redfin, has done really good work highlighting the climate change risk in our in our housing future. And so it like it, it's it's something I think about a lot. People ask me, you know, should I be buying a house in in Northern California, I'm like, you know, I, I got to point out that, you know, in the last five years, you know, the prevalence of smoke and like those are those are seem significantly new hurdles in, in our world. And they don't seem to they they seem persistent from here. So like it's a real it is a real change that, that I don't think we've run into yet. You know, and we yeah, see it in I mean, it's such it's such an enormous problem and scary that a lot of times people look at this and they just panic and get paralyzed. And so we're not making the decisions we need to. We're not introducing risk-based pricing where we need to. You know, we're not taking the steps to retrofit our existing homes to make them more resilient because this just seems so overwhelming. Yeah. So, so the, and the, the information, like putting a climate risk score on, on every listing is an interesting, that may not be on people's radars. Are there, are there other things that you see solutions that like have outsized gains or things that aren't on people's radars? They go, Oh, that'd be easy. We don't actually have to go change all the mortgage laws or get local voters to, you know, change their entire, their entire universe. Like what are, what are some of the things that it'd be like big wins or, you know, here's the one that, that like, I can now go to Twitter and be an advocate for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the, on the housing production side, I think it is a good sign that state governments are leaning more into what local governments can and can't do with their zoning and their housing production. Because you know, fundamentally, we're not going to get every single city and county in the US to change their zoning laws in ways that make it easier to build. But state governments can put pressure on their localities that are not doing enough, right? And this, this doesn't have to be pressure on every single city and county. It's the places that really need to do more. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, California has stepped up a lot, but a number of other states, you know, places like Utah and Maine have also passed some statewide zoning reforms. And so I think in general, that trend is really helpful. One of the things that I would like to see more on kind of the state reform, there's been a lot of focus initially on ADUs, accessory dwelling units, and on duplexes as sort of, you know, low hanging fruit. It's not legalizing apartment buildings, but you can do a little bit more. I would actually like to see more focus on row houses as a structure type. ADUs and duplexes still aren't that common. So, you know, an ADU can be added to a single family detached house in a couple of different ways. 
but it's a it's a pretty small dwelling unit. We're relying on individual homeowners to do that. You know, duplexes, we just we don't build that much. So there's not an industry. But the nice thing about row houses is we build a lot of them already, right? The home building industry knows how to do this. You can get a lot of homes on a small piece of land. They work for homeownership, they work for rental, they're pretty economical. You know, we know how to do this. And, you know, imagine legalizing row houses statewide in California, every single family neighborhood. You've got a bunch of places with houses on two acre lots. You could put a whole cluster of row houses very efficiently on one lot and give homes to a whole lot more people. Yeah, that's a great one. So and it, it's like the, you know, the the hobbyist urban planner in me is like, you know, love to walk through Paris. It's like the perfect city. It's, you know, the four story walk up row houses it's like it's like the perfect density for humans you you get you get the the creative density and the you know the impact of the community but it's not like you know the high rise where you know you go into your parking slot and go into your elevator and never see anybody either it's like it's like that's like the a real mix there yeah. And it's it's the right density to support neighborhood serving retail. So you get row house neighborhoods, you can easily integrate some commercial, some commercial, some restaurants and grocery stores and things nearby, which makes it then easier also to do the sort of, you know, 15 minute city where people don't have to drive everywhere and they've got things close by. It's a pretty economical sort of cost space relative to high rise construction, which can be very expensive. So, I, you know, I think we should think in terms of creating row house neighborhoods in as many places as possible and integrating this kind of neighborhood retail as well, especially in a work from home era that works really nicely for people's lifestyles. Yeah, I like it. I think that's really, I, that, would, that makes a lot of sense to me. The, the, it actually though gets to one of the other tensions, which is, you know, people still like their exurbs and they like being, they, I don't know if they like being in their cars, but they certainly keep opting to be in their cars and driving out to the exurbs. And, it, and as far as from the, the data I've seen, it, it doesn't seem like we have any real slowing in the suburban or exurban migration. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. And if anything, we saw extra sort of moves to the suburbs and exurbs during COVID because people were looking for a bigger home that has a home office, little extra space. And if you're only going into the office once or twice a week instead of five days a week, the longer commute is okay. So I, you know, in, in a sense, the last couple of years have been pretty bad for encouraging people to move farther out. I think there's still some questions about how long people are going to be able to work from home. And so there may be some reversal of that coming as employers call people back to the office. But the other thing is to realize that we've got a lot of subsidies baked into suburban lifestyles. So, you know, the government pay, takes 80% of the federal gas tax and spends it on roads and car infrastructure. Only 20% goes for things like public transit and walking infrastructure, right? So the government is paying for a lot of the cost of extending roads out into the exurbs. There's also a pretty heavy subsidy for, you know, water and sewer infrastructure that gets extended out. Often that's more expensive than reusing what we already have in the urban core. Plus, we have you know these subsidies for people to take out larger mortgages. So we're encouraging people to buy expensive homes out in the suburbs to drive their cars on the roads. And if you subsidize that lifestyle, we shouldn't be surprised that more people are choosing it, right? So it's not that we need to ban cars and ban the suburbs. It's more leveling the playing field and having more financial support for kind of a walking lifestyle in a dense urban core, including a lot of the suburbs, right? Many of our, our older inner 
ring suburbs actually have, you know, they have good bones. They have a commercial downtown, you know, they have smaller streets and smaller grids. And we could just make more use of the inner ring suburbs rather than continuing to build out and out and out. Right. Some, some re... Uh, vitalization and some of those downtown revitalization things are pretty cool. There's some really neat activity that happens there. Are there any of those that that stand out to you as particularly uh, good examples of stuff we should emulate? So I actually like to think about what we can do with kind of the the suburban, like the suburban office parks and malls, which have been losing occupancy for a long time, right? So we're going to have a ton of dead malls, right? Retail has gone so much online that the big shopping centers just have a hard time making it work. Those are great opportunities for doing creative redevelopment, doing some mixed use, residential, commercial, walkable, potentially even some, some office. There's a great example near me outside of D.C., Called the Mosaic District in Fairfax County. It was, you know, single-story commercial with a giant surface parking lot. They've done a beautiful mixed-use development there with lots of public space. And if you go on the weekend, it's just packed with people who go there to hang out and walk around the public space and listen to concerts and things. So it's much better than what was there. And we've got a ton of sites like that. You know, the suburban office parks are in real trouble and there's a lot of land there that you could reuse. So big master plan developments in places that already have the infrastructure. Yeah, I heard a good comment recently. It was something like, you know, Americans, you know, get in their cars to drive every place. But when when we want to go to a, a vacation and we want to go to a place to relax and have fun, we go to a place that we can walk. And so it's a really fast, like, but we keep buying places that we drive to. I wonder if we can get to a world where we we recognize that we really like to be in walkable area most of the time. I mean, it's amazing that places like the villages in Florida, right, the retirement communities, what do they look like? They look like pretty dense homes organized around little public spaces for people to get together and socialize. You take a golf cart around it. Why don't we build just, you know, normal housing for people of all ages that looks more like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out people like that. You, you mentioned work from home and the work from home trend. So I, I, I talk with a lot of my my guess about this trend, about its persistence and its impact on the market. And, and, and so there's a couple of things that I'm, I'm curious about your take on this. So you, you mentioned that maybe you think that it may be fading, like we may get more return to the office, but are there implications for like infrastructure in a world where let's say, so I, I live and work in San Francisco. And I have an office, I'm in my my office now, but you know, there's 25% of the space is occupied and I don't see it coming back. Like I like to go to my office to have my creative space, my light over here and, and things like that. But, but uh, you know, most people don't have the luxury of being only 15 minute drive, hop in. And so being home is really nice. And for a lot of people. And so does that, are there, are there infrastructure implications, tax implications? Like, what do you think, where are we going? Yeah, no, there, there, I think there are a couple of big question marks still about this. So San Francisco, New York, and DC are three of the cities that still have pretty high work from home rates. Lots of other parts of the country are basically back to where they were before. So this is kind of localized. And those are the places that have the, you know, the longest commute. So it's understandable those are places where people are reluctant to come back in. 
I think two of the big implications, one is for the office and commercial real estate market in the urban core. What's going to happen to all of those offices that are 25% occupied, 30% occupied, right? So they're not completely empty. And in many cases, you know, the, the office tenants are still paying on the lease, but they're just not using it, right? And at some point we have to decide if some of that should be turned over to other spaces and how to make that happen, right? Which is not that cheap and easy. The other piece that makes me really nervous is that our public transportation systems have just gotten hammered. So transit ridership, in all of the major metros is way down from where it was, both because office workers aren't going in as much. And when people are going in, they're more likely to drive than they were before. That's particularly true for the trains because train riders tend to have higher incomes. Bus ridership is getting pretty close to where it was before because those are people who mm -hmm. don't have cars and they really rely on bus systems. But it might suggest that we need to, the transit agencies need to shift their delivery, right? They have run trains primarily for sort of heavy commuting in from the suburbs to downtown in the morning and reverse in the evening, fewer trains during the days, nights, and weekends. But it looks like transit is more now being used for people who are doing entertainment and socializing, not necessarily for commuting, right? So the hours don't align. You know, buses give you more flexibility in where you run the routes, and those are serving people who really need the transit. But I think transit agencies have not yet figured out what to do and how to adapt. They are financially really hurting with this. They've been propped up by some temporary federal funds, but they're going to have to go through some major restructuring and figure out what consumers are going to use. Yeah, like what I took the subway in San Francisco the other day to the to the office and and rarely, rarely do it. I get in my car and I drive, you know, even if it's a couple minutes across town, but I took it and it's, you know, it was it was lovely it was you know it was there were people there and it wasn't totally empty and you know it was like you know it it was lovely and efficient but it was it was light you know and and even my little parking garage where i parked the car you know even even driving is you know it is you know two and a half years ago if you showed up at 10 a.m you're screwed you, you can't get in and now, you know now you, you can you know take a couple of calls from home and then show up and you know at the office at 10 30 in the morning and it's just fine those kind of things are it it sure feels like there's a lot of pain to be had especially as you point out that there's a lot of people paying for the space and you know the lease may be three still have three years to go but in three years they're not coming back they're they're done and and or they're going you know 15 percent of what they had and so i it feels to me like we've got a lot of pain to happen there. And maybe it is localized. I, you know, I, I definitely have my, my little local perspective, but it's not just the city. It's all the way down Silicon Valley, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, all the big employers, you know, all the big tech companies are, those are the ones who are, nobody in those organizations want to want to be in the office all the way to the top. They don't want, you know, they want, they, there's some creative power for being in the inside, but but they don't really want to be there. So it's going to be fascinating. I think a lot of pain still to be had there. Yeah, and we we see an enormous amount of that in D.C. because the biggest office tenant downtown is the federal government. Federal agencies are not back five days a week or anything close to it, and I don't think they're ever coming back. So there are a lot of 1980s vintage office buildings, which aren't that easy to repurpose, and which are owned by the federal government, who doesn't like to sell off its properties that are sitting there vacant and kind of dead space. It has been just a death blow to all of the local retailers 
I mean, restaurants and like the coffee shops and the dry cleaners around the downtown area, they have just been hammered and many of them have gone out of business and they're never coming back. So yeah. I, I worry what's going to happen to our downtowns if we don't figure out a way to bring new life to them. Yeah. All right. So let's shift gears. Do we have some things to be optimistic about? We do. So one of the things is just that we're talking a lot more about the problems in housing market with higher visibility and at a higher level of government than we really ever have. So in, you know, in 2020, for instance, every single one of the Democratic presidential candidates had a housing policy on their website, and every single one of them pointed to the lack of housing and the role of zoning in restricting housing as a problem. We've never seen that kind of attention before. Both the Trump administration and the Biden administration are talking about what we need to do to encourage more housing and more moderately priced housing. There's also been an enormous growth at the state and local level of essentially local nonprofit organizations that are organized around housing that show up at their council meetings and say, hey, we actually need to build more apartments. We need more entry-level homeownership. We need more rental housing. So there's a pushback to kind of the older homeowner NIMBYs from these local groups that are organizing, and they're starting to get some real wins, both at the city level in places like Portland and Minneapolis, at the state level in places like California and Massachusetts. So, you know, there's more attention, more interest in this. And I think, you know, having these conversations get outside the housing policy world and into a broader discussion about how this impacts things like homeownership, like wealth building, like climate. I think it's helpful to have these conversations at a broader level and start to bring work people in awesome that, yes those are there are some things that, like you see that california is the state of california is aware of the density problem and so as a solution and is starting to make some changes there so that okay that's great uh, those are nice to be optimistic about let me ask you for a second about the fundamental assumption that we don't have enough housing and you know we can see that we've we built a whole lot fewer homes in the last decade post post financial crisis and uh, and tell me how you, but i've also seen some pretty smart people who take a look at the housing stock and say you know what we actually don't have too few homes and and so tell me about how you think about the meaning of too few homes a, a shortage and and then also i'm interested in the future like you know, we have these demographic waves, we have millennials, we have the boomers, like, what are the implications? What do you look at for the implications in the next five to 10 years on how many homes we have? Yeah, so there have been a couple of really careful attempts to kind of quantify how many homes short we are. Freddie Mac did a report a couple of years ago, and then a group called Up for Growth did an update of their numbers using a similar method this summer. And they both come up with something like three and a half to four million homes short nationally. Now, that that looks really different when you start to drill down. Obviously, places like California, the whole state is behind on building and, in fact, has been losing population largely because people can't afford to stay there. So we have you know lower income people who are moving out of California and high income people moving in. The population overall is shrinking largely because housing is just too expensive. That looks really different than a place like St. Louis or, or Akron, Ohio, 
where the jobs have been gone for a long time, they've lost a lot of population from their historic peak, and they've got more homes than they have people, right? So at the local level, you have some cities, we'll say rural areas too, rural counties in the US have been losing population since 1950. Most rural counties have vacant housing, they don't have a shortage, um, but a lot of their housing is old and not in very good shape. So, you know, we do see different patterns, but the, the numbers that I have seen that I trust say that nationally we don't have enough. And of course, the focus is we need to be building more housing in the places that people want to move to, right? Having a shortage, having a shortage of homes in a Bay Area and a surplus of homes in St. Louis doesn't actually solve your problem because people aren't moving to St. Louis because they can't get the same kinds of jobs there. Yeah. And so so then we have one of the things that's been driving our our housing market in the last few years is the millennials are now in their late 30s they're reaching peak earning and home buying years and there's a lot of them i'm gen x i'm straight in the middle of gen x and and there's not that many of us and when we hit our late 30s there was a financial crisis like there was fewer of us buying homes the uh uh the boomers haven't really sold their houses yet what do you think about that demographic curve what do you look what do you think about you know in the next decade yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the period when we need the most homes because, you know, it's great for the boomers that they are healthier and living longer and can stay in their independent homes longer than previous generations, right? We should all be happy about that. But that coinciding with the millennials needing to buy homes and not having built enough really means that we've got this pent up demand two places in the, in the demographic spectrum. You know, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the boomers when they start moving, how many of them choose to downsize or relocate, but it, you know, sort of forecasting from, from past demographic trends, we're gonna have more older renters than we have had before. We are gonna have more older homeowners who still have pretty large amounts of mortgage debt, right? So people who you know took out a new mortgage when they turned 50 or 55 and they took out a 30 year mortgage. So we've got a lot of seniors who are more exposed to things like changes in their, their property tax rates, who maybe you know, see their income disrupted and not be able to pay a mortgage. That's something that's pretty concerning. And you know, places like California have seen an uptick in the number of older adults who are experiencing homelessness. That's a really disturbing trend, right? People who were renters, who you know, their rent has gone up, they can't afford it. And you know, I was in San Diego last week, They've got a bunch of seniors who are living in their cars because they can't afford to rent an apartment anymore. So, you know, some of the some of the boomer homeowners are sitting very pretty. They've built up a giant nest egg of equity from having bought a home earlier. But it's not true that all of the older households are doing well. And of course, a lot of the millennials are delaying home ownership because they just they don't have the savings. They've got student loan debt. They're having a very hard time getting in. The later they buy their first home, the longer they're going to be making mortgage payments, too. So I think this suggests potentially more financial instability for a lot of households than we've had before. So so some risk there in the in the the coming years. Which which I suppose would be congruent with the argument of, you know, like in general, the American financial position is is pretty shaky. And, and so it, it may show up in a place where we have more older renters and more older people with uh, with mortgages where right now that they're everybody's perfectly happy to pay their mortgages. But but that may that that may change in a would. And I'm thinking about like, you know, 
deep recession, if we're in a deep recession, does it, it probably hits the outside edges of those first, huh? Yeah, and you know, this is another area where I I hope that Fannie and Freddie are thinking about when they give mortgages to people, starting to look at age as a factor and just, you know, shorten the length of the mortgage. So if you want to refinance your house when you're 55, you shouldn't be taking on a 30-year mortgage, you should be taking on a 15-year mortgage, right? So we could start to build some of those guardrails into the into the mortgage products, but I think people haven't fully appreciated yet sort of how many people there are for whom this is a risk. Yeah. Yeah. That that that's interesting. So one of the things I like to do in this podcast is is find risks that other that we we don't normally talk about and that's that's one that i hadn't really thought about which is you know we have like having more older people with longer term debt that you could imagine gets exacerbated when they have to they suddenly have to sell or those those kind of things interesting okay so you mentioned homelessness and in some cities I live in San Francisco, you know, it's a real crisis. Are there are there clear policy things we can do now that don't rely on, you know, the actual neighborhoods in San Francisco where you hear the neighborhood communities are like, yes, we got to build more housing, not in our neighborhood. And you literally hear them say, we can't do it in our neighborhood, but we should definitely do it in the, it's as really remarkable. Meanwhile, the city is in, you know, crisis in this topic. Are there policies that we can do that, that we don't have to rely on, on getting through those literally saying not in my backyard? Unfortunately not, because, uh, you know, homelessness is worse in cities that have very high housing prices and that don't have enough rental housing, right? So there's a, a terrific book that came out in the spring called Homelessness is the Housing Problem that looks across cities and metro areas. You know, it's not that San Francisco has more people with mental illness or drug addiction than say West Virginia does, but West Virginia has got a lot of cheap housing. And so even people who have some problems in their personal life who don't earn a lot of money can mostly find someplace cheap that they can afford to live, whereas in the Bay Area, you really don't have that as an option. So, you know, the only way that California and Seattle are going to deal with their homelessness problems is by building enough rental housing that there's some slack and some vacancy. You know, for chronically homeless people, we are going to need to have more funding for things like permanent supportive housing. So just the building housing is not enough. We also have to have cash, but you can't finance building enough permanent supportive housing in San Francisco while the rents and the construction costs are what they are, right? So money alone won't solve it. Building market rate housing alone won't solve it. We really do need to have both of those pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really fascinating looking at the homeless data. It's like homelessness is a direct correlation to the cost of homes. And it's 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 wild. It's like not all of the other things that we want to ascribe to to homelessness and 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 it's it feels in many ways super intractable and and you know over time hopefully we can we can get ahead of it and and hopefully as you say it's maybe we have the opportunity because we have more people aware of the the conditions and more people aware of what the solutions are they're actually pretty straightforward even if they are big effort to get done 
Yeah, and this is something that elected officials are so sensitive to because they hear from their constituents when you've got homeless encampments that are very visible, especially in downtown areas or in tourist areas, local elected officials hear this, you know, many of them want to do kind of the quick thing, which is to move the encampment someplace else, but not actually provide long-term solutions. So we need to keep reminding them that that's not in fact going to solve anything. Moving homeless people from one part of the city to the next is just going to get a different set of constituents mad at you. At some point, we actually have to tackle the problem and build some homes. And build some homes. All right. Well, Jenny, this has been a real interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. I like the book a lot. I'm uh, rec recommending it to people. And it's really, if if you are, I mean, I'm a housing geek. We're housing geeks. We're, you know, I dive into the data and, and into thinking about some of the challenges that are in front of us, the things like you know, we're underbuilt and where we are building the, the, the climate risks. There's all, so much that we're faced with in this country. You talk a lot in, in the book about the racial and minority wealth gap that has been created and, and, you know, driven initially by redlining 50 years ago or 60 years ago. And now we have generational wealth challenges because, Americans make money with their houses, and we kept a bunch of people from buying houses 50, 60 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's it's such an important point because you can't make up that, you know, generations of difference and people being able to build up wealth. You can't make that up quickly, right? So even if we got Black and Latino families into home ownership at the same rate that white families are today, there's still that generations of not having had wealth in the family to catch up with. So, you know, there, there's a whole chapter on things we can do to encourage more wealth building. But I think it's important just to remember that home ownership isn't the only way people can build wealth and we should be open to other options as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. I'm going to, meanwhile, see if I can get my daughter to get over to some some lecture in the in the Washington area studies at GW. We'll we'll see if I can get that. If I can motivate that. But I appreciate the work and and the thoughts. Where should people follow you? They should get the book. What what where should they follow you? Connect. See you. Yeah, right. I'm I'm on Twitter far too much. I'm at Jenny underscore Schutz on Twitter, and you can find the book at your local neighborhood bookstore, online through Bookshop or through Amazon. Go knock on your neighborhood bookseller and ask them if they carry it. Awesome, Jenny. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that's the Top of Mind podcast. I'm Mike Simonson. I'm the CEO of Altos Research, and you know we talk about housing. We talk about the housing data. If you need the housing data for your business. Go to altosresearch.com and just connect book time with our team because things are changing so rapidly right now. It's a really wild time to be in, in a real estate market. And, you know, buyers and sellers need to know what's going on right now. So if you have buyers and sellers who need to know, they need to get the data from you. So altosresearch.com is where you do that. And Jenny, thanks again. Talk to you all soon. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.